we are, in our human reality, connected more easily to things we can see and touch and taste. We are sensate people. Now, that doesn't mean that we reduce the divine, nor, on the other hand, uh, do we ignore the human. Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical and joyful. Today's show I've called Reasons for Relics. Why are relics so fundamental to Catholicism? Do they help or hinder our faith in today's modern society? I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Renee Collar-Ryan, my co-host, professor in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome back, Renee. Thank you, Peter and by Father Brian Lucas. Welcome, Father Brian. Thanks very much, Peter. And uh, Father is a wonderful title of affection for the clergy, but in the relaxed atmosphere that we're going to chat about relics, feel very comfortable to call me Brian. Okay. Thank you, Brian. Just a reminder that if you like the show, you should subscribe on your favourite podcast device. That way you won't miss an episode. You can find all the show notes and contact links that we refer to in the show at our website, thiscatholiclife.com.au. So I guess we have to open up the conversation with the question, what is a relic? One way of thinking about relics is to think about those things that remind us of someone or some place. Right. We tend to use relics in a very technical sense when we talk about things associated with saints, and we'll come to talk about that in due course. But even something as simple as the uh, image you have on your smartphone, mm-hmm. your, your loved one, your family member. As a matter of fact, I do. Let me show you. It's a reminder. (laughs) It's it's a reminder. So relics are tangible things that remind us of someone or something or or, or give us an opportunity to engage in a practical way with some concept or idea. Mm. In the religious sphere, of course, relics take on a particular connotation where we associate them with holy people. Right. What we call in the Christian tradition saints. Right. People who have been recognized for their holiness and goodness of life. But why can't we just take a picture of them, for example? Like, let's say, uh, do we, uh, we're talking here specifically about uh, the relics of St. Teresa of Lisieux um, because they're visiting Australia. Did we have any photos of St. Teresa of Lisieux? Lots of photos yeah. if you go onto the Catholic Mission website yep. for the well, pilgrimage of the relics around Australia. That's the first website we have to have in the links. There we go. <laughs> You'll find lots of images, lots of photographs. So in fact, even, even the Sunday Telegraph last week when they wrote the story about how the relics of St. Teresa's parents got lost oh dear. had a photograph of St. Teresa. Yes, photographs are important and they are, they are helpful in reminding us but a relic, something that is closer and more tangible to the saint, obviously has that different value. So that's why we say there are three classes of relics. The first class are the, are the things actually associated with the person. Mm. These relics of St. Therese and of her parents involve in a beautiful ornate reliquy a portion of their bones. Right. A second class relic is something they owned, their rosary beads, their prayer book, the, the religious habit that they wore. And then the third class of relic are those things which are very mobile, things that have somehow touched or been associated with the saint. So right. we have all this law and rules about relics to, to stop abuses, which, yep, is, yep. which is an important thing to do. And that's a historical thing, isn't it? Because very they were so. They were abused at a, at a certain time in the church's history. Well, you had the rivalry, of course, in the Middle Ages. Every town <laughs> had to have a place of pilgrimage or a saint that was more mm. attractive that got more business than the town next door. There was a joke that the reformers told about the Catholics that if they put together all of the relics of the true cross, they could build a house. Well, there's all those examples and many different examples <laughs> are given. And, and we have to be very, very 
prudent. Right. And our catechesis has to be very sound so that people come to understand the relic is not some magic omen, not some talisman, not something that we associate in a superstitious way mm. with a power, but rather we understand that it reminds us mm. of the values of that saint, uh, t- brings us into contact. So I was at the parish out at Varival last Monday afternoon, public holiday, middle of the afternoon. 20-something people in the church where the relics were present and they were sitting quietly. Now, I don't know what was going through their mind as they sat there quietly in their prayer, Mm -hmm. but something about those relics attracted them to the place. Having come to the place, they enter into the stillness of the place and stillness, of course, is the foundation of prayer. Well, I think most of us could um, resonate. Everyone has a, an item or something that reminds them of someone. So I'm, I have a walking stick that belonged to my grandfather and he's long since died, but I've had the walking stick and it still physically reminds me of him. But there's something a little bit different and a little bit weird. Um, I, as an ex-Protestant who became a Catholic, there's something a little bit strange about finding out when St. Teresa's relics came to Australia Back in I think two thousand one or two thousand two, two thousand two, I was privileged to to be one of the people carrying the reliquary into the church at the time. I didn't know what was going on really. I, I was asked by the priest and carried this thing in, and then I said, "She's quite heavy," and they said, "Yes, it's a rather a large piece. You know, it's, it's her arm or something." <laughs> and at this point, my mind just exploded with, "Ah, what? <laughs> you've got, you've got an arm in here? What the heck? That's." I mean, my grandfather's walking cane is one thing. We don't tend to carry around bits of people in the, in an average sense. And, and in the modern world, we wouldn't tend to do that. No. Although one of the weirdest, if we're talking weird, there's nothing weirder than the Capuchin Cemetery oh. in Rome. Yeah, the Bone the Church, we used to call it. Yeah. Mm. And then you go in there and it's weird. 4,000 <laughs> yeah. Capuchin monks all decorated in bones until you read, of course, the message. Yeah. What we are now, you will be. Wow. Mm. That, that that message, you know? Wow. Mm. The Catholic Church is so gothic. <laughs> <laughs> it's true gothic, isn't it? It's the true goth, not this, right. not this modern That's stuff. Right. Yeah. But I remember when Francis Saviour's, St. Francis Saviour's arm came to Australia, that would have been in 2012, 13, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it came to one of, the, one of the local parishes and we were there – and there was a homily about just how powerful it was that we had Francis Xavier's arm because if you thought about how many he had baptised in his missionary work and that really helped me to appreciate relics even more. There is actually this deep interconnectedness which mm. has, it has something to do with the fact that as Catholics we're quite gritty because the incarnation, you know, that's we, the we point, really focus it, on... The incarnation. Well, yeah, that's right. And what, why is it though, man, this is the point we're really getting at, why would someone who's long since died, their physical matter, surely, as the Protestants would say, surely they're in heaven now. Their bodies don't matter anymore. Now, so what's the Catholic answer to this? And in one sense, the body doesn't matter in a sense right. because there's something spiritual that transcends the body. But we are still bodily people Yes. and we pray for the mortal remains. Yes. We, we honour and venerate the mortal remains. And we're awaiting the resurrected body as well, so it's like nothing is going to be wasted in the end. And, that, and that's precisely the yeah. way in which we draw a connection between that person and our own spiritual devotion. I mean, if you're looking at someone who the church has said, and we probably should talk about what a saint is, but if the church has cl- made clear this person is a saint, that means we're looking at a physical connection with heaven in, in a certain sense. 
at least as a reminder and a, and a, that this person's body will eventually be mm. resurrected. And an aspiration, maybe. It's the promise of the resurrection, yeah. of course. I just mm. came you know, into the studio from a funeral this morning mm. um, of Incension Priest, um, Father Gerald Scott. He's my um, brother-in-law's uncle, and uh, he'd been part of our family, my sister's children's baptisms, confirmations, and so on. And uh, you go to the funeral, and there's the coffin. In one sense, he's there, but in another sense, he's not there. Right. In another sense, that's the memory mm. and the stories that are that are connected to the way in which we link ourselves to that person and mm. we remind ourselves through the telling of the stories about that person's life, that person's values, what that person represents. Mm. Mm. So St. Therese is the story of the soul. It is the story of love. It is about the simple things of life done with love. And then we have the story of her parents and we share those stories and they remind us of values that we hold dear. It's still a different, it's the physical aspect of it. Sorry to keep coming back to it, but that's really the relic thing, isn't it? Because there's, um, I've noticed, you brought up the example of the funeral there. Catholic funerals are different To I experienced funerals as a Protestant mm. all through my uh, young adult life and there was a, almost a dismissal of the physical, whereas in the Catholic funeral they the coffin's Smack bang, front and center, and there's, there's some um, you know water holy and water and, and there's yeah. incense and there's yeah. dirt. There's all kinds of stuff going on physically. Exactly, because we are in our human reality connected more easily to things we can see and touch and taste. Mm. We are sensate people. Mm. Now that doesn't mean that we reduce the divine, nor on the other hand, uh, do we ignore the human. <laughs> and that's the mystery of incarnation, mm. uh, that combination of human and divine, that God came into our world in the person of Jesus in a particular place at a particular time in history. Yeah. And that makes a difference. Okay. Uh, it is not simply the concept in my intellect of something that I project, which is, you know, one of the ways in which the philosopher seeks to explain, you know, mm -hmm. religion in a broad, broad, broad sense, but rather the Christian disposition is very fundamentally about a time and a place. Yeah. And and therefore, the story leading up to that time and place and the story moving out from that time and place. It's mm. the Luke's gospel story, the journey to Jerusalem and the journey from Jerusalem mm. out to the world. Uh, and so the relics, as they come on pilgrimage uh, and as the Shrine of Lisieux makes the relics of St. Therese available to the world, it's the way in which that mission of St. Therese, and she is the patroness of mission, mm. uh, tells the story of Jesus to our world. We've talked a little bit about how spiritual things like the relics can draw us closer to God. Um, if I can just share a brief anecdote of when I first encountered the relics, I remember carrying them into the church and then watching, and I still didn't get it. Like I, my, Maybe I was too, still too Protestant or something. I just couldn't get my head around what this... And I'd also read some of St. Teresa's works and it hadn't really touched me. Like it, it just hadn't grabbed me. But I watched hundreds and hundreds of people come through this church and some of them were weeping and many mm. of them were quite devout and I couldn't figure it out. Jumped into the queue myself after watching for, me <laughs> for a couple of hours and as I approached the relics, I found myself just overcome with the with the the amazing privilege of being in the presence of someone who we, we're clear that God had blessed with with the you know the hope of the eternal resurrection and they're now with God in heaven it wasn't about me just feeling sentimentally attached to the person I didn't really feel that personal attachment it was just the the physicality of the if you like the closeness to something someone that God had worked um, his holiness in 
you've mentioned uh, you would have been in a privileged position of seeing many, many different um, people come to the the relics. Have, have, can you give share any anecdotes or examples of different people? Well, I spent many years at St Mary's Cathedral, but happened to be out of the country in huh. two thousand two. <laughs> that was bad timing, Brian. <laughs> I did. I was uh, I was doing some study in Rome at the time. I had a church or fellowship and went off and uh, had three months away at the very time the relics came to St Mary's mm. Cathedral. Right. But I got all the reports, of course, from my my priest friends as to the crowds that were there. Mm. But you see it in other places, pilgrimage places around the yeah. world. You know, the, the famous pilgrimage places, not only the, the basilicas in Rome, of course, that are very, very moving for a lot of people. I've, I go to Rome three or four times a year right. in the nature of my work at Catholic Mission. And I always make a point of going down to St. Peter's Basilica and just sitting there in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel quietly, just watch people come and go. Mm. And you see just in the body language how people can be overcome. Yes, one group of people, they're the tourists. They don't know what this <laughs> means. It doesn't, it's just another big building. For others, uh, this is a very moving moment. And then you go to places like Lourdes. I've been there twice, um, a place of, of, uh, of real devotion to the sick. Uh, and people are just sitting there quietly in tears. Mm. And I used to see that when I was on the staff at St Mary's Cathedral. You know, sometimes just for nothing to do on a Sunday afternoon, just have a walk around and more than once you'd see somebody, and, and, and often men, not just women, but sometimes men, and they're sitting there in the pew and obviously sobbing. What's happened? Just got word of a death in the family, some crisis of health, who knows? Mm. And sometimes you'd catch their eye and sometimes they want to talk, but often just leave them be. They're with God. And, and so a place like a cathedral, a place of pilgrimage and an opportunity when the relics come for people to gather. And perhaps, Peter, when you're talking about your own experience, this might have been a, a sense of the connectedness to the other people oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. Which brings us, of course, to the fundamental of religious feeling and religious activity, which is belonging. Mm. And I think for too long, you know, what we've done in the church is we've, we've put all this emphasis on believing, you know, lots of doctrine, catechism, neat and tidy, and, and underplayed what often was a Protestant connectedness of belonging, right. of a sense of uh, community with other people. And it's the belonging that reinforces faith rather than the other way around. Mm. Do you think there's a good way to prepare for that kind of experience of being with relics, so of venerating the relics as, as we speak about it? Have you, are there any practices that, that some of our listeners might think about having communally or individually as a kind of preparation? I think what is going on in the schools, for instance, and we've got a lot of resources on our website to help people with that, uh, and that is the catechesis. Who are these people? Right. What is their story? Yeah. And then a, a sense that this person's story, St. Teresa's story, young Carmelite nun, dies in her 20s, writes a book about the love of God, essentially, gives me a message about how in my life I'm able to do things well and do things out of love and do the simple things out of love. So to reflect on that and then to reinforce that by the visit to the relics. Yeah. Mm. Perhaps it'd be a good time then to talk more about Sir Therese and, and her family and why in particular she's been singled out. Well, is she a doctor of the church? Well, I think she is a doctor of the church. Yeah, she's a doctor of the church. She was announced um, by Pope John Paul II to be the doctor of the church during World Youth Day in Paris in 1997. So just to be clear to our listener, uh, being uh, lots of 
people have been named saints, but to someone to be called a doctor of the church, that means they've, they've got a very special teaching capacity. It, it puts them in the front row. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're the people we should be listening they're, to because they kind the, of know what's going yeah, on. They're yeah. in the front row of yeah. people who've, whose contribution mm. intellectually and spiritually to life of the church but as we've just heard, heard from Renee, she's, she's quite young when she died. She was very young. And, and oh, yeah. And this is what I always found fascinating about her. She died when she was 20 and she was a Carmelite nun. And yet she's the patroness of the missions. She didn't go missions. anywhere. No, Come on. <laughs> and that's the point of mission, you see. Yeah. That mission is not just about going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, it, it is also very much about uh, the sense of solidarity within the Christian community and the willingness to share faith. Mm. And of course, as a Carmelite nun, her presence and her prayer is the sharing of faith. Yeah. Just for, again for the listeners, a Carmelite nun is somebody who is is literally what we call cloistered, which yeah. means they're locked away. They don't generally speaking mix with the public. They their whole life is devoted to study and prayer and um, reflection. Obviously, praying for the souls. But the, but is she from her diaries, I understand she's very much involved with her sisters and and all of the other people in the and a community is of course a yes. small microcosm of society. And, yeah. uh, I'm sure she won't mind me saying this publicly, but at the funeral I mentioned a little while ago, one of the other nieces of Father Gerald Scott was Sister Hilda Scott, very well known to young people in Australia for her mm. involvement in World Youth Day, right. the, the the abbess of the um, Benedictine Abbey at Jamboree. Uh, and she, of course, uh, leads that contemplative community in the spirit, not of the Carmelites, but in the spirit of the Benedictines, but, but there's a similar understanding of the importance of the routine of prayer to give witness to the spiritual. Mm. And, and St. Therese did that, and that was the foundation of, of mission. Right. We then come to the much more recent canonization of her parents, Louis and Zelie Martin, and their story, again, we can identify with very well. You know, Louis Martin um, had a stroke. Right. Uh, we would call the last years of his life a dementia illness. And we right. think of how prevalent dementia is in society yes. today with an mm. ageing population. And the challenge of caring for someone with dementia, which is what one of his daughters did in the wow. last yeah. year of his life. So that is something, again, as we, through our catechesis, explain this story to people. Uh, and one can well imagine... Um, one of the things I do, because I'm a bureaucrat and I've been a priest bureaucrat now for 30 <laughs> years, um, is that to fill in my annual leave, I sometimes do a chaplaincy on cruise ships, right. which is very demanding and exhausting <laughs> work. <laughs> um, but, but it is also very edifying. It's also very needed from what I hear goes on in cruise ships. <laughs> well, I think... No yeah, comment. Uh, <laughs> Holland, America, <laughs> they put a priest on every cruise for daily mass. Oh, every, really? Daily mass. Wow. Uh, and you're looking at people, and people come to Mass, they tell you their story, but you're looking around and you're watching, and it's an older demographic, but the wife who's, you know, getting the husband breakfast, because he's got dementia. Wow. He can come on the cruise, he's physically capable, mm. but you need someone to look after him. And how edifying that is that after 30, 40, 50 years of marriage, here are people caring. Mm. Uh, you know, the person who's, who's helping um, the, 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 the wife who's in the wheelchair. Mm. Um, so that disability angle, as it were, and I use the word angle a bit inadvisedly, um, is part of the story of married life and a couple whose love for each other generates, of course, their love for their children yes. and gives the example of love which the children express, again, what we would call through mission. 
Wow. And the mission, I mean, several popes now have said that the, the key mission field is the family, um, that within a family that's where people learn the, the love of God first. Well, that's the experience that most children have. And mm. um, one of the sadnesses, of course, in a complex society are those circumstances where that isn't the experience. Mm. And we have children uh, who are deprived. I mean, we know the story of, of Don Bosco, uh, who founded the Salesians, who had as a vision uh, the care for young people, young children at risk. And so if we can establish and reinforce uh, family life, uh, through supporting parents, through all the, the normal crises of, of human reality, uh, that provides the right setting for the catechesis uh, of children. Uh, perhaps before we go into specifically into St. Therese and her family, we've talked a little bit about them. I want to talk a, a bit later about what message they have, and you've touched on that a little bit. How does someone get to be a saint? Like, there's lots of really awesome people out there, and many people have died. And probably plenty in heaven who we don't know about. But how is it, what's the process and how do we get to know, like, how can I tell someone's a saint? Not just because I like them or they happen to have died or? Well, there's a, a complex piece of church law about canonization of saints. Uh, the cynic would say, well, you need to, needed to have founded a religious order uh, <laughs> that has lots of members that can tell your story to lots of people. Right generates the cult, right. the worship, the veneration. Worship's the wrong word, but the, the sense of worthiness and veneration of that particular mm. that particular person. Um, there are many saints who were canonised simply by acclamation. They were seen immediately upon their death to be a person whose life was extraordinary uh, and almost by popular acclamation. Mm. Some of saints. this was a bit there with John Paul too, with the Santo there, Subito there, the, there at was his that. funeral. There yeah. was that. Yeah. Um, then we had... The, the need because of the abuse and so much of what happens in the church is the counter to abuses that happen in the church. So right. things go wrong and the people are proclaimed to say, what, what is, as it were, the quality control? <laughs> yeah. So then you have to have a process mm. and the process involves the establishment of a cause, uh, 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 the, the history of the person and the person's writings and the person's life that says this was an extraordinary life uh, a life of of holiness, mm. and then every aspect of that life is examined in in minute detail, and the postulator of the cause writes it all up. And we saw, it, you know, in our own um, living experience with the canonization of Saint Mary of the Cross MacKillop. Mm. Right. And I was living with Cardinal Clancy, and we saw um, he'd been to see the Pope, and he came back from the meeting. Uh, this is in the early nineties, and uh, he um, he. We said to him, you know, pumping him a little bit, looking for a bit of gossip, you know, uh, Cardinal, what were you, you know, we, went, we saw you, you went to visit the Pope. He said, yes, he said, um, we want to press the cause of Mary MacKillop. And it was, you know, it had been languishing there somewhere and he wanted to give it a bit of a push along. Right. And then, of course, in 1995, um, we had the beatification. Right. And I was on the cathedral staff at the time and Pope John Paul II came to the house and uh, and stayed there with us. And so I tell the story, you know, people in Rome who big note themselves and uh, I was there doing this course and the lecturer said, people think they're important, you know. I've had lunch with the Pope, you see. He <laughs> caught my eye and he said, oh, Brian, he said, have you ever had lunch with the Pope? And I said, yes. <laughs> and, and, and paused for effect twice. And paused for effect. 
and he came to my place. <laughs> and, uh, and that was a wonderful moment yeah. when you think of, of the impact of that visit. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, then in order to get the beatification after you go through these stages, you need the evidence of the miracle. Mm. And then after the beatification, the evidence of a second miracle uh, connected um, to that person, to, to a sense of devotion connected to that person uh, for the canonization to occur. And we saw that process with, with Mary MacKillop. Mm. My own patron, St. Albert the Great, is singled out for his, his amazing capacity to cover many different scientific disciplines um, at the time. But he, I don't think he was canonized until like six, six hundred or something years after his death, I don't remember. Yeah. But it seems as if he was he was sort of called to mind by the Pope at the time because of the emergence of science as a as a big thing, and he was one of the the Church's early fathers who had made it clear that science and religion were quite in harmony with each other. And so, if you like, the move to canonize him to bring him to the attention of the Church is a way of saying, okay, yes. These particular examples are bad examples of how faith, faith and science might mix, but here's an excellent example. And so he's put forward, if you like, as an example of that. Is that a fair comment? I think that is a fair comment because often in the whole panorama of the canonizations, um, that the place Australia did not have right. a saint. And so, you know, is, is it now possible? Is there the evidence for Mary of the Cross MacKillop uh, mm-hmm. to meet the criteria? Well, someone's got to examine that. The resources have to be put into it, and the effort is worth it because for the Australian people, this is mm. this is very significant. And the work is now being done uh, for another very, very well known and is that uh, Eileen O'Connor, ho- ho- holy Australian Eileen O'Connor. Yeah, it's very exciting, and, and that that will take us somewhere. Uh, uh, knowing the postulator and his zeal, mm. but then the evidence has to be there. And there has to then be the evidence uh, for the miracle and yeah. the process. I think what we need to be just a little bit cautious of is that we don't, in our mind, think that, well, unless we have a saint in our country or unless we have a saint connected to our religious order or unless we have a saint connected to our city, uh, somehow things aren't worth it. Um, uh, saints are important, but they are reminders. Right. Uh, we've got to come back to what we might call the main game. Yep. Uh, and the main <laughs> game is our connectedness as a Eucharistic, Christocentric mm-hmm. religion. Mm. Yeah. But that's it. That's the point, isn't it? This is the communion of saints. These people are not removed from us. They, they are, might be a reminder of their, their physical lives on earth, their earthly life, but they're still living. They're, they're, they're with us and will rejoin us in heaven, hopefully. Mm. Please, God. Um, what always strikes me when there is that, um, when there are moments like relics, um, you know, the, the visiting of the relics, which I'm sure we'll see more of this again, is that there is that sense of community people are gathering together to do something that the rest of the world might think is kind of strange but if they really sincerely um, have that knowledge that belief that this is all about Christ then that does bring a certain richness and what always strikes me is the joyfulness as well so to the outside world it might look like something really weird that's going on but there's just so much joy and gratitude and communal spirit which I think I'm uh, really looking forward to seeing more of in the next few weeks. I think we could do, do with a bit of that. I think that's very important. I think, Renee, what you've said is critical. That for, for too long, I think some, and, and I think to some extent Catholic practice has been a bit at fault here. Uh, religion has been a little bit too dour, a little bit too serious. You know, Johnny, we're going into church, you get that smile off your face. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's straight in your tie. Of, yeah, <laughs> that sort of mentality that says somehow 
um, you can't be happy and joyful. Yeah, that's mm. right. Uh, that religion has to be something very, very serious. Now, there yeah. are times to be serious. Mm. Beautiful text from uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, yes. a time for this and a time that's for right. that. Um, and there are times when we should rejoice uh, and there are times um, when people do simply need to come together. Right. I'll be particularly interested when the relics and this itinerary was set long before the bushfires. Mm. But when the relics make their way through some of those parishes on the south coast right. of oh. New South Wales, um, what will be the what will be the reaction? Um, obviously, you know, on the occasion like that, sometimes people want to make a financial offering. So Catholic missions given that up in favour of the bushfires and St Vincent de Paul, which is right. an obvious thing thing to do. It's not so much that there might be some monetary contribution as a sense of solidarity, but that people will come together and hold hands and embrace and feel connected because that's what really counts. Once you've yeah. lost your house, once you've lost everything that was of a material possession, what you are left with ultimately is your connectedness to people who love you. Right. And that's what we hope the pilgrimage of the relics will be able to address yeah. in those particular places. Mm. Now, it could be very different in, in a Carmelite convent in, in, in Brisbane. Right. It, it could be a different mood, a different uh, style. Yeah. Um, but each community will find the opportunity to come together. Because as we were saying earlier in, in our discussion, the belonging is the beginning, right. which then leads to believing, which in turn leads to behaving. Right. And far too much moralising has got in religion, too much emphasis on the behaving, not supported by a sound believing and totally disconnected from belonging, which is why people drift. Mm. Mm. Okay, you've spoke, you've mentioned a couple of locations there. I mean, let's get down to some nitty gritties. Where, where is the where are the relics actually going? Well, the relics are going to one hundred and thirty seven venues. Wow! So I can't recite them all, but, <laughs> but, but I've been through this itinerary many of times. Mm. But but all of the detail and this sometimes changes from from hour to hour as different priests have negotiated with their neighbour. <laughs> Look, it'd be better if we had the eight o'clock mass and they yeah, get to you for yeah. a ten o'clock mass, and the times change. But they're all on the Catholic Mission uh, website, right? Which and, we will and be that, that'll be the official um, that'll be the official itinerary. I, I just travelled overseas and I had to fill out one of those customs forms. I, I just I'd be interested to, to see the customs form as people are putting relics on a plane. <laughs> oh, I can tell you, Peter, there is more than one customs form. <laughs> uh, in fact, and I must pay considerable credit, and I don't now have in my head the the, the names of the officials. Um, but in the Department of Health in Canberra, uh, a lot of work had to be done because there are protocols about the importation of relics. So we sure. had the Department of Health. We had the French Ministry of Culture, right. who of course have to give the permission for the export in order to satisfy the Australian authorities uh, for yep. the permission for the import. And then also the Biosecurity Division of the Department of Agriculture. Mm. Right. And they had their involvement. So they were most cooperative in what was a very complex um uh, dealing between Australia and, and Paris. And so they all got onto the aeroplane as far as Singapore and then that's when things went a little bit wobbly and uh, <laughs> uh, they, they missed the connection in in Singapore the first day. So St. Therese came the next day but the parents had got lost and they had to come uh, a, a day later, later after they'd been, uh, <laughs> they'd been found. Um, the There's some rich symbolism <laughs> in all of this, <laughs> I know it. it. Can I ask how often do three members of the same family 
get to do a trip like this? Well, they've just come from Scotland. Yeah. No, sorry, St. Therese went to Scotland. The, 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 the three have been, I think, somewhere in Asia now. I'm speculating. I should have prepared yeah. better and I do apologise to the no, listeners for not being so well prepared. But I think it was in Thailand. Um, they, they had the three together. We thought we were going to be the first in the world, but we discovered we weren't. But this is this is very rare. It's more often the relics of Saint Therese travel. And, uh, and I meant to more generally too, Brian. It, this seems to me quite extraordinary that you have not only three members of the same family, so the parents and a daughter who are, have been declared saints, but also that they that there is this grand tour going on of the three of them. Hmm. Am I right that that is quite extraordinary? It is very extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, okay. I think the canonisation of of a married couple is almost unique. Yes. Uh, and their daughter as well is is a one of. Yeah, that's It's fine. a pretty extraordinary thing and, and also sends a pretty clear message, um, not just to Australia, but when you see a family who are a saintly family, yes. um, it, it draws it to our attention that the, the, you know, the basic unit of society is the family and that that's where... All our faith and our, our holiness begins, if you like. I, I think, without doubt, yeah. the nature of family life, with all the stresses that it's under in the modern Western world, different in other parts of the world, different in different cultures, yeah. and sometimes there are other abuses of family mm. in other cultures that, that, that are problematic as well. But all of this big complexity of, of, of family life comes back to the core, uh, which is the the fruitful love of husband and wife and the relationship of husband and wife with children. Mm. And that's important and that's an important value because that Mm. sets the tone for the way in which society develops. Then we have to, at the same time, be aware because of human frailty, not everyone measures up to that ideal. Mm. And as a church, we have to be very, very cautious not to send messages of exclusion to those people in circumstances where, for whatever reason, um, that perfect model of family has not worked out yeah. uh, for them. But even th- they weren't, I mean, you mentioned the, the illness, um, the dementia, that, that's not a perfect circumstance and that's that's a tragic and, circumstance. And, and the death of, of Zelly at a young age yeah. as well. That's right. Yeah. And I remember coming across and taking great heart that I was in a mother's group on, um, on Facebook and someone had been reading Zelie's journal and, or a letter, and she had said something like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this brat of a child. <laughs> and she was talking about St. Therese. <laughs> That's fantastic. On that so, note, on <laughs> she that was three or so. You know the terrible threes yes. when you can't control anything? That's where she was. Absolutely. Mm. On that, I mean, I, I think they give us hope precisely because they weren't perfect and that, that God, with, with God's help, we can actually work towards that holiness. It's not about being perfectly behaved or having perfect circumstances. It's actually about letting God change us. On that note, it's probably a good place to wrap up. So that's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking or arguing with your podcast device, let us know. You can subscribe to the podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au and send us a message if you're on the on website if you like, especially if you've got some ideas other shows you can continue our conversation by joining us on twitter instagram facebook discord etc and write us a review on itunes remember that this is a uniquely australian catholic podcast and we think that's an idea worth getting behind so tell your friends before we go it's time for shout outs i would like to shout out to all of our wonderful fireys across australia so fireys our fire fire people men and women who have been going out there and courageously looking after each other and showing some of that love that i think we've been talking about a bit in the podcast today excellent Brian, shout out to all those volunteers behind the scenes who don't have a uniform, Mm -hmm. who aren't in the front line, 
but are making sure things happen in local communities uh, to support people in need. And I'd also put a little shout out to all those people uh, for the Invercare family right around the country who are way above the call of duty, giving their time and effort to make sure the relics get from this place to that place in a very timely fashion. They have been extraordinary in their generosity and their and their enthusiasm. And there was that wonderful photo which made one of the News Limited papers of the funeral directors standing around the relics when they arrived. So to those people who've been partnering with us and to all those engaged in the planning of this pilgrimage, a shout to them too. Excellent. I'm going to shout out to all those families who, uh, as Brian mentioned, are doing it tough, who who feel like, oh gosh, we're never going to get there. This is, you know, just keep in mind that uh, God works miracles and he works miracles with ordinary people in in messy circumstances and... uh, Sit with, sit with perhaps these relics or certainly with, with Christ in the Eucharist and ask him for that help because he can help you and he does. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to This Catholic Life. Mm-hmm.